Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, again, Happy Easter. If you are a guest, we're super glad that you are here with us today. Uh, It's a special Sunday if you are a Christian. Uh, We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And if you're maybe a seeker or a skeptic or not sure what you believe quite yet, we are so glad that you're here. And I pray that you're open to learn about what we believe and we wanna share that with you. Uh, But as we begin, uh, I just wanna say everyone loves good news in general, right? Like we all love good news. It makes our hearts happy and it brightens our day. And when one of you, I I know our church, uh, if you're a guest, I I know you if you're regular, if you guys have good news, you post it all over Facebook and Instagram, and I get to celebrate with you. Uh, You might share good news about a trip you took or uh, the great food you're about to eat. We're all taking those pictures and putting them out there. You've got a new job, or maybe you just like ran a half marathon. And like, I learned about that over the weekend. I'm like, that's awesome. And you scored a record time. Like I'm hearing these things. I'm like, you guys crushed it. There's good news, or maybe you have a baby on the way, but we love good news. And no matter what, you and I have this uh, automatic impulse to share our good news with others, right? I just gave you some examples of what we do. And friends, this is a good thing. And today is no different. Guys, today Christians celebrate the greatest news ever told, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, amen? For over 2000 years, Christians have celebrated that truth, that Jesus historically and actually lived a perfect life, He sacrificially died in our place because of our sins. And then he like really, real life, real, real, physically rose from the dead. In fact, guys, it's not even hard to find some contemporary, even secular historians and scientists and scholars that claim evidence to the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. One of those is the late Thomas Arnold. He's a professor of modern history at Oxford University. And he said this, The evidence for Jesus's life, death, and resurrection has been shown to be satisfactory according to the standards of any historian. And it holds up according to common rules for distinguishing good evidence and bad evidence. He says tens of thousands of persons have gone through it by piece and have carefully reviewed it as any judge would an important case. And then he says further, he says, even I've done this over and over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy my own self. He says, throughout my life, I've made a career of studying the histories of times and events and examining and weighing the evidence that was written about each of them. And then he concludes with this declaration. He says, I know of no other one fact in history, which proved to have more better and fuller evidence than this one. Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. And this is a secular historian writing about the ample evidence we have about Jesus raising from the grave. So listen, this is a powerful truth for the Christian faith. Why? Let me just show you three things real quick. Because no other person recorded in human history has ever done the three things I'm about to share. No one in human history has proclaimed to be God, accurately predicted the events surrounding his death and resurrection with great precision, and then actually accomplished it like Jesus. No one in history 
In fact, many of the world's religions or major spiritual philosophies are actually based on a founder who proclaimed to know the way of life or an afterlife or a heaven, but they've actually each failed to give real proof of their claim. And each one of them have sadly passed away and remained that way with giving no claim or no real proof that there is an afterlife or there is a resurrection. So think about that for a moment. Muhammad of Islam died in 632 AD and his body lays in the prophet's mosque in Saudi Arabia. Confucius of Confucianism died in 479 BC and his body lays in Kongling Cemetery in China. The Buddha of Buddhism died around the fourth century BC and his body was cremated, including his bones and created relics for them and his body lays in the Northern Indian kingdoms. Guys, I don't say these facts in order to ridicule other religions, no, but to reinforce this compelling evidence that Jesus's body was not kept because it did not stay dead. History provides no obituary for him, no autopsy, no evidence that he is still dead because he is not. See, this Jesus of actual flesh and blood history, this Jesus claimed to be God. And then he actually predicted the exact details of his death with perfect precision and then boldly proclaimed that after his death, he would indeed raise from the dead. Why? To prove to all humanity that he is indeed God as John 14, 6 says. Jesus says this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father or heaven except through him. So in other words, what's Easter about? Easter is not only bringing proof that God exists, but that God lived and he died and he came back from the dead in order to what? Bring you back into a relationship with himself. And all it costs is your faith, your trust. He did all the work for you. So here's the main question we ask today. How will you, how will you personally respond to the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. All of us have to make that choice, whether you're part of our church for a long time or you're a guest this Sunday. How are you going to respond to the evidence? If it's true, will you follow? If it's right and accurate, if this wasn't just faith or made up fables, but if it was real, a real person proclaimed to be God and came back, would you, would you trust him? Would you follow him? So here's the outline today, guys. We're gonna study the historical narrative of Jesus' resurrection that's found in Matthew chapter 28. I'm gonna hit the other four, uh, the three gospels as well so you can get a sort of full picture. And then I wanna give you just a few evidences of Jesus' real and literal, re literal resurrection. Like how would we know it's actually true? And we'll unpack just three simple points about his resurrection. Sound good? That's where we're going today, Okay. So let's read Matthew 28, again, verses one through eight. And I wanna provide some commentary for you as we go through it. This is one of my favorite passages. I used this passage uh, last year, and then I just sort of added in the other stories of the gospel so you can get the full picture of what's happening. Verse one, he says this. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, uh, which just means this, this is three days after Jesus' uh, gruesome crucifixion on a Roman cross, here's what happens. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now you can imagine for a moment that these two friends and followers of Jesus, these two women, as they were walking to the, temp, walking to the tomb, they were doing it silently and defeated. 
Mary and Mary, their, their, their tears were probably still filling their eyes because their hearts were devastated at their friend's death three days earlier. I'm sure they were confused. They were upset. They were wondering if everything Jesus said about grace and forgiveness and, and a perfect heaven for them to live in one day was all true. Or was it just another scam, another letdown added to the life of disappointment that they were already facing? Verse two, and behold, when they got there, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now the stone that enclosed this tomb, guys, would probably have weighed several hundreds of pounds, multi-hundreds of pounds, if not more. So it's possible that God used a physical earthquake to break the seal that they would put around the tomb to keep this stone in place that the Roman guards would have put at the entrance. Verse three, the angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothes was white as snow. That's signifying his radiance and glory from actually being in the presence of God in heaven. Verse four, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said, to the women, do not be afraid. Man, I love that introduction because the women just experienced a huge earthquake and angels like shooting out of heaven. The tomb of their dead friend and rabbi was open. They would have been terrified. And so the angel says, do not be afraid. And then he continues, I know that you see Jesus. You seek Jesus who is crucified. And then here comes the best news that's been ever spoken on the earth. He says, but he is not here for he is risen just as he said. The angel then invites, he says, come, come and see the place where he used to lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee and there you're actually going to see him. See, I have told you. Verse eight, so they departed quickly from the tomb and then check this out. They had great fear, and great joy, and they ran and told the disciples. Guys, I love this narrative. And if you're a Christian, you probably love this narrative. Guys, did you notice real quick, how did the women respond to the resurrection? What was their posture? It says that they responded with great fear and great joy. Now listen, the, the fear was not the terror of being in danger, but it was the awe that comes from witnessing something magnificent. Like I showed this about a year ago. Have you ever witnessed the power of a rocket like launching into space? Have any of you ever been to Cape Canaveral in Florida and you've experienced an actual rocket firsthand going into outer space? Guys, you feel like the sheer force. That too, that, that, you might feel that too when you're there, but you might feel the sheer force of a rocket. It like shakes the ground beneath you. It actually shakes in your heart. You can't hear anybody else talking around you. It leaves you in a state of fear and all in wonder if you were to see this in person. And this was the fearful all and wonder that the two Marys experienced from seeing the tomb was empty and their friend had truly risen. It was a shaking, wonderful all of the power of what happened, just like a rocket taking off. So their fear was not about danger. Why? Because listen, Jesus was not back from the dead to seek vengeance on them, but forgiveness for them. Jesus, guys, is not like the scorpion king from the movie, The Mummy. He didn't come back from the dead to retaliate, but to reconcile to reconcile people to God by simple faith in him. 
Now the text also tells us in, uh, in verse eight that coupled with this magnificent fear was this great joy that they had. The reason these women had great joy was because they knew the empty tomb. They knew what it meant for them. And friend, do you know, do you personally know what it means for you? They knew it and had great joy, but do you know what the empty tomb means? Friend or guest or someone watching online, the the empty tomb means that the emptiness of despair, of pain, of guilt, of injustice, of addiction and death do not any longer have the final word in our lives. The tomb was filled and then it was emptied so that we who are filled with sorrow would be emptied from it again one day in Christ. Amen? So church, listen, God's resurrection power means that he has risen above death, above despair, above pain. And if you are in him by faith, then one day he will raise you above those things as well. That is good news. The good news that the empty tomb means that God's anger towards you is empty as well. Jesus paid the penalty for your and my injustice against God. Here's a great point I want you to to uh, uh, drink deeply from in your hearts tonight. If you get anything, this is it. God's wrath was emptied on Jesus so that his love could be emptied on you. And when you look in the tomb, you see that is emptied. God emptied the wrath on Jesus and then he emptied his love on you. And no matter what walk your life you've come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what background you have with faith, all you must do in order to get in on this is to look and see that God has come back from the grave. His death has been paid for for you. What we believe is so different than much of what the world believes. Thinking you must earn your place. You must try hard. You must achieve by coming to church or praying some prayer. The requirements have already been complete. You look at the requirements to have a relationship with God, go to heaven one day, and it's empty, just like the tomb. And this is the invitation for you. The women who found Jesus' tomb empty knew that Jesus was not a foe sent to condemn them, but a friend come to save them. Jesus came not to bring judgment on us, but to bear on him our judgment. So what's the first way that you and I can respond to the resurrection of Jesus? The first way is very simple. You can respond like these two Marys with great joy. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can respond with great joy, knowing your sins have been laid to rest and the wrath of God, the punishment of God because of sin is emptied. My friends, if you look to the cross today and you truly believe that it was you who was supposed to be on that cross, but Jesus took your place, the only response your heart can have is great joy, knowing that this God wants a relationship with you. And so out of the Mary's heart was great joy knowing what they've done in the past the shame they carry is no longer theirs to hold. It's empty. Now I do love the two Marys in this story, but you know what I love most? Is when you shift over to John chapter 20, there's a similar narrative and you're gonna get two other disciples and they're gonna run 
after getting the news from the Marys, they're gonna run to the tomb and you're gonna watch how they got this news. Because remember how this part ended, right? Said that they were supposed to go and tell the other disciples. Well, the Marys brought the news to the disciples and then the disciples came to the tomb. I love what happens when the news of the resurrection gets to Peter, when it reaches Peter's ears. Check it out in John chapter 20, verse three. I have it on the screen for you here. It says, so Peter went out with the other disciple and that other disciple's name was probably John because that John wrote that book and they were going toward the tomb and both of them were running together. And then I shared this before that I, I love this detail. Uh, they were super excited to go to the resurrection. They were running because they were excited. And then it says this interesting line. You totally know that a dude wrote this. It says, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love this detail because again, you know a dude wrote it because he's always telling the world who beat who to the tomb. Uh, I shared this before. John probably did CrossFit and Peter like me did croissants. So that's why he lost the race. And John made sure the entire world knew in his gospel account, who made it to the tomb first. Totally a dude thing to do. Verse five, and stooping to look in, look at what John did. John saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. But when Simon Peter came following him, he went into the tomb. Now that's a really interesting detail here for me. I wonder it is for you. Why did John stay outside of the tomb at first, but then Peter go inside immediately? Well, guys, listen, we're not exactly sure, but we do know this, that Peter was weighed down with so much guilt and shame for how he had rejected God in his life. Are any of us have been there before? Maybe you walked in today and you feel like you have rejected God in your life. And maybe you got an invite and you're coming to church today and you're like, maybe I kind of, I kind of feel similarly. Peter was so weighed down with guilt and shame. He couldn't bear the shame and regret of his choices any longer. See guys, around the time of Jesus' crucifixion, Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, actually abandons Jesus. He left Jesus to be captured and, and beaten and crucified alone. When Peter said, I'll never leave you, God, he abandoned Jesus in his time of need. And then worse, Peter fled. Even worse than that, when others recognized Peter around town, he denied that he was even friends or associates or followers of Jesus. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus any longer. And so Peter probably was so weighed down with regret that he ran to the tomb to see if this whole thing was really real, if Jesus was really God and therefore back from the dead. And if so, he had to find out, would God still love him after everything that he had done? Would God still care for him despite his wanderings and rejection? And maybe some of you friends feel that way right now. You've wandered from God. And you feel this sense of guilt and shame over some choices you have made in your life. And you may wonder, does God still love me? Does he care about me anymore? And let me show you how I know he still does. Verse six. Then Simon Peter came following him. He went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there which is super interesting because those were the grave clothes that should have been on Peter for his sins, but they weren't. And he saw the face cloth, which had been put on Jesus' head. It was not lying with the linen clothes, but it was folded up neatly, nicely and placed by itself. 
Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then he went in and they both saw and they believed. For as yet or until now, they did not understand the scripture that he must raise from the dead. So what did Peter find out, friends, when he reached the empty tomb? He found out the good news that he needed. And there's, here's the good news that he found, and it's for you too, that God traveled from the furthest distance of death to show you that the furthest distance of your wandering is no match for his love for you. He traveled to the furthest point of separation for the human race, which is death, to show you that your separation from him is very much in reach. And if he can bring himself back from the furthest point of death, then don't you think he can bring you back from the furthest point of where you are in your life? And that's what God is doing with Peter here. He was bringing him back to himself. And this bringing back is not something that Peter could achieve. It's something that he only had to receive. Trust and hope in what God had done. He couldn't achieve it. He had to receive it. It's by faith alone. And Peter did. Peter did receive this. He believed, he trusted, he was transformed. How do I know? Look at for yourself out of his very mouth in 1 Peter chapter one. Here's what he says. He said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you hear what he said? He said his great mercy, his great mercy. Mercy is simply forgiveness. It's the withholding from a punishment that we deserve. And when Peter looked in that grave, he saw the grave clothes that should have been on him. And he recognized that God is merciful and forgiving. Have you recognized that? Do you know that you and I have fallen short of God's perfect standards? That God hates sin and must punish it. And so he did it on Jesus so he could give you freedom, forgiveness, and love. Peter was changed by this mercy. The resurrection of Jesus proved to Peter that God laid Peter's sins to rest in that tomb never to be held against him and never to be defined by them again. His great mercy calls Peter to be born again to a living hope, one that did not count his sins against him. And friends, he'll do the same for you. Have you believed it yet? Have you trusted it? No matter what experience you have, what background you have with Christianity, he is offering it to everyone, no matter who you are, no matter how far you've been. The invitation is for you to come and see it's empty so you could be filled in him. You can respond like the Marys and like Peter with joy, knowing your sins have been laid to rest. Number two, another way we can respond though is the counter opposite. We can respond with fear, fear. We can actually ignore the evidence of the resurrection and try to live in our own frail and fading power, fearing who's gonna love our life, who's gonna help us in life, who's gonna be in control of our life. We can respond with fear. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at verse two again. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and he came back and rolled the stone and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And for fear, it says, and for fear of this angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now think about this for a moment. Of all the people, the guards at the tomb 
should have been the most convinced about the evidence of the resurrection, right? Because they literally saw it. But most of them never did anything with it. Scholars say that one or two of these guards may have come to faith in Jesus later because otherwise, how else would we know the details of this narrative involving the guards? But the other guards just took the bribe money from the chief priest and kept their mouths shut as Matthew 28, 15 states. The guards represent those of us who may only give passing attention to the weightiest matters of the resurrection. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've not considered the implications of a God who has come and a God who has resurrected. And so we must again ask this huge question, did Jesus actually, did he really, is this fable? Did he actually raise from the dead? Because friends, if you ignore this question, do you realize what you're keeping yourself from? Guys, if Jesus rose from the dead, he holds the keys to meaning and to fulfillment and to peace in your life and the life to come. And isn't that what you and I have always been looking for on this earth? Meaning, fulfillment, peace, love, belonging. Even if it's just a possibility that he rose from the dead, shouldn't you and I at least consider the evidence for his resurrection? But what happens to so many of us, my friends and neighbors, is that we are fearful for what we might find there. We're often fearful of what we must give up if the resurrection is true and Jesus is God. We fear what it will cost us. Because a few years ago, I spoke with a member of uh, one of our network churches and she lost her fiance in a, a tragic accident. And she told me, Aaron, I don't know how I could ever make it through the sorrows of something like this if you don't have the hope of the resurrection that those who trusted in Jesus in this life will live again in the next. And truthfully, I don't, I don't either. We would let, be left to despair without the reality of the resurrection. The joy we have as Christians is knowing that the grave is not the end, that we have a hope and a home that stretches beyond the bounds of this life, amen? Guys, this is personally why the resurrection is so important for me. Because of the brokenness that's in me, the struggles that I have, my two little girls that have dealt with abuse and neglect and harm before they came to my house. Where's, what's the hope for them? What's the hope for you? If you've been neglected or hurt or you're dealing with mental illness or problems in your own life, your past, what's the hope for us if there's no resurrection? The good news is that the resurrection says that I'm not left in my brokenness that one day God will fix and redeem and give hope to every area that's struggling. This is why I love these little details that's found in verses six and seven. Would you look at it again with me? Verse six, it says, then Simon Peter came following him, but Peter went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths that were lying there. He saw the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but it was folded up neatly by itself. Now, why is the folded cloth detail so significant? Because many scholars see this folded cloth as providing some logical evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. And you ask how? Because this detail helps us to combat something called the stolen body theory. One that many people hold in our world. 
It's a theory that suggests that the empty tomb is just a scam. That what really happened was that some person or some group beat up the elite and highly trained Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb. Then they broke the seal on the tomb. They pulled back the multi-hundred pound stone in front. They rushed in to steal Jesus' body in the night. And then one type A person in the group decided to take the moment to separate out Jesus' sweaty and bloody grave clothes and the nicely needed ones that was covered on Jesus' face. And then they ran off with Jesus' body into the night. Now, some of you in this room are type A. You like your house clean. You want your laundry folded. But it seems highly unlikely that that's what happened that night. In the rush of what happened, someone decided to fold up Jesus' clothes nicely and leave it there and then scamper off into the night with Jesus' dead body. Seems very unlikely that this is actually the case. There must be some other explanation. Guys, this folded cloth detail at the empty tomb suggests a very calm and orderly process rather than one of a burglarized tomb. It was like someone was trying to send a detail to everyone that was watching. Like the tomb being emptied was some in intentional and all part of a cosmic plan to communicate something to us to consider the details, to consider the evidence. Now guys, there's a ton of theories. We're not gonna go through all of them. Like the stolen body theory that combat the claims of the resurrection. But I just wanna highlight a few because there might be a friend in here like me who is a seeker or a skeptic or someone watching online that you're wondering, is this resurrection true? Because if it is, and there's someone who can give me life and, and hope and, and love and help me through this life and then give me a resting place for all of eternity, and it be real, and I'm, I'm left free of my brokenness and my mental illnesses and my past shame, I wanna know, how can I know if this is true? So I wanna give you a few, if you're really considering this and wondering, if you're a guest who walked in, if you're watching a lot, I really want you to lean in and consider some of this evidence. Some of you may be like me and you maybe thought, uh, did he like really actually die? I know Christians say he did, but did he really die? I don't think he did, some say. He just fainted, he just fainted. This is known as the swoon theory, that he was on the cross, he fainted, they put him in a tomb, and then finally he got out. But guys, this doesn't account for the severity of his injuries, including the beating, the pierced hands and feet, the hanging for hours on the cross, slowly suffocating, a pierced side with a, a, a spear with blood lost recorded in John 19, 34, a burial that had 75 pounds of spices on top of his body in the tomb. Because even if this were true, how could he manage to survive like this without medical attention for three days and then get up, roll away the incredibly heavy stone in front of the tomb and then beat up the elite guards and get away? This fainting swoon theory is not likely. Maybe he did raise. Maybe this is real. Another theory is the substitution theory which some of my really good Muslim friends believe that actually on the cross was not Jesus, but it was Judas. This does not explain, however, how Jesus's own mother and Jesus' best friends who were right at the cross could have been duped. They know what Jesus looks like. And even though he was marred, they know what he sounds like, especially his own mom. Imagine Judas saying on the cross to forgive the soldiers 
for what they were doing. It's not likely that the substitutionary theory holds weight. Again, the stolen body theory, this is a huge one that many people believe. They say he didn't rise, someone just took his body. They say it had to have been the disciples. Now guys, just think about this for a moment. Guys, how did scared, non-military trained fishermen, like fishermen, fight off the elite and highly trained Roman soldiers guarding the tomb? Like, remember Peter? Do you guys remember when he was, he had a sword and they were in the garden and he went to strike the guy and he missed and chopped off his ear? Peter's not going to win a battle against elite guards. He's a fisherman. But let's just say they did. Let's say the disciples beat up the guards. They broke the seal on the tomb. They pulled back the stone. They stripped uh, a dead Jesus naked. They, fought, they folded up his clothes real nice and neat and they stole his body and ran to the night. Let's just imagine that for a moment. Let's just imagine that the whole Jesus alive thing is a religious hoax. Why would they do that then? What's the motive for the disciples? Just think about that. It's a huge claim. Why would they do that? What's the motive? Guys, in a religious hoax, there's some sort of gain that people would, would gain from something like this. It would be money or it would be power or sex or something like that. That's the, that, was the, that would be the purpose of a hoax, right? So wouldn't we see some scriptural evidence or some historical evidence of their gain like that would make sense, right? Take the dead Jesus' bodies. He's back from the dead. Give us all your money. And they get castles and houses and armies. And like, oh, I'm going to get Jesus behind the veil. And he's going to strike you dead. Like that kind of makes sense. But okay, where's the proof of that? Guys, the disciples gained no power. You can look at through history, their whole lives, they were pursued to death. 11 of the 12 were murdered. The 12th killed himself. There was no power for them. Many were martyred for their faith. Now, it's one thing to die for what you think is true, but it's something else entirely if you're willing to die for what you actually know is a lie. Makes no sense. Why would you be martyred for something that you actually know is not real? But these men died knowing and proclaiming that Jesus is risen from the dead. There was nothing for them to gain. There was no money for them. They were notoriously poor. And any money that they did get, those jokers just gave it away. So it couldn't be about money. And their testimony, it couldn't get them sex because they taught that sex was only to be experienced between two people in the gift of marriage. That didn't work out for them either. So they didn't create this hoax for money or for sex or for power. What was their motive? Guys, they taught that Christians should live joyfully without power, without money, without sexual gratification possible because they said that our kingdom is not of this world. And so we can put up with misery here because we are assured of a kingdom there. And they base that assurance on the resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? Just a couple steps further, because I want to nerd out for a moment with you. Okay, maybe the disciples didn't steal the body, but what about the Jewish leaders? Like what would be their motive? The, the, the Jewish leaders, the only motive I could think of was that they could steal Jesus' body to like preempt the disciples from stealing it. Ha ha, smart thought, right? And then when the disciples start claiming that Jesus is resurrected, they could produce the body and say, ta-da, he's here. He's still not dead. We squash your beliefs. That didn't seem like that happened though. Because in Jerusalem, the most hostile place for the resurrection to be preached was actually the foundation of where it got preached. But they never did that. And they certainly would have done so if they had taken his body. It was the fastest way to shut up the disciples and kill Christianity in the moment that it started. Maybe it wasn't the disciples 
or the Jewish leaders, but maybe say maybe the Romans stole his body. Look, Pilate ordered an official Roman seal to be placed on Jesus' tomb, which meant that anyone who disturbed this seal, disturbed the seal would be put to death. So if the soldiers were trying to take it or some other Roman person, was it really worth their own personal death by stealing this body? Doesn't seem likely. Last one here, just for kicks, the wrong tomb theory. This is maybe the second most common one, which says the disciples just simply went to the wrong tomb. That makes sense, right? Right? Mary Martha just went to the wrong tomb. Peter went to the wrong tomb. That's why Jesus wasn't there, right? Well, if that's the case, then why was the body never produced by the person's grave that it was in or by his enemies to disprove the resurrection and to shut up the believers that were disturbing everything in the city? To make it even further believable, Jesus was like the most well-known figure in Israel. His burial site was known by many people. In fact, this is what's so cool. Matthew records the exact location of Jesus' tomb. He states, and Joseph of Arimathea took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. That's Matthew 27, 59. Mark asserts the writers, um, the, the, uh, sorry, um, Mark asserts that Joseph was a prominent member of the council. So everyone would have known where Joseph's tomb was and everyone could go and see this is the tomb he was at. It was the fancy tomb, the nice tomb. And everyone knew that that's where he was going to. So Jesus, even before he's dead, knows that he just needs a borrowed tomb. So he has this richest guy possible, gives up his tomb and everyone knows that's where Jesus is laying. So there's no way they got the wrong tomb. Tom Anderson, former president of the California Trials Lawyers Association says this, let's just assume that the written accounts of his appearance to hundreds of people were false. I want to pose a question. With an event as well publicized, don't you think that's reasonable that one historian, just one eyewitness, just one antagonist would record for all of time that he had seen Jesus' body dead? The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. Friends, we have an ancient and reliable proof, even from Josephus, a Jewish non-Christian scholar that lived during the day and time of Jesus that gave us proof that he actually really did live. He really did say he was God. He really did die on the cross. He really did was buried. You have a real person in history that's not uh, a scripture, not Christian scripture saying this of his truth. So where's the question? Where's his body? If he really lived, where are his remains? The only answer that seems logical is to consider that Jesus actually God, that he actually lived in the flesh, that he actually died in our place, that he actually rose from the grave, that he actually spent 40 days with over 500 people showing himself to others and that he actually ascended into heaven and he will actually return one day. My friends, if you've come seeking, if you're online watching and you're exploring the claims of Christianity, would you consider these pieces of, of evidence as an invitation to believe? No other belief set, no other religion has this evidence. Have these claims, have this history. Would you consider this God and hear his invitation? So friends, please don't be like the guards. Don't let your fear of what you'll maybe lose by becoming a Christian turn you away from trusting in Jesus. 
For in Jesus, you gain far more than what you would ever lose. As martyred missionary Jim Elliott would say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, would you turn your fear into faith? And would you trust in the perfect life, the sacrificial death and the historical, real, literal resurrection of Jesus on your behalf? And then here's our final point for today. Guys, you can respond with great joy. You can respond with fear and ignore the evidence and turn from God and try to carry your, the own weight of your life, things that go well and things that don't. Or last, you can respond three with worship and you can take this message as true and you can share it with others around us. Here's how this text ends. So the disciples departed quickly from the tomb. They had fear, but they had great joy and they ran to tell, that's the key, ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. Jesus in the flesh met them and said, greetings. And they came to him and they took hold of his real feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. I want you to go and tell my brothers Go and tell others to go to Galilee and they will see me there. My friend, this is the great invitation. Jesus is saying through this text to you, greetings. Would you turn? Would you trust? He has brought this message from this set of disciples to another set of disciples all throughout human history, all the way today, where I would tell you, would you go and turn and trust in Jesus? On this day, the disciples went and they told their friends and neighbors and a movement happened throughout history. What was prophesied and foretold in the New Testament was completely accomplished in the New Testament. Every amount of prophecy that was told of this future king coming, Jesus fulfilled perfectly. And my friends, how do we respond? We respond by receiving this Jesus, by trusting in this Jesus, by trusting that his ways are for our good and for our flourishing. We turn from sin, we turn to him. And my friends, if you're a Christian, this message is too good to keep to ourselves. So we, like Jesus, hear his words and we hear, go and tell your friends, go and tell your neighbors so they can receive this life and meaning and purpose and future that we have in Christ. So friends, my final question is, how will you respond today? How will you respond today to the resurrection? With great joy? knowing your sins are laid to rest with fear, living in your own frail and fading power or with worship, receiving this Jesus and sharing this Jesus with others. How will you respond? Christ has risen. He is risen indeed.